0: Welcome to Bestseller TV. I'm Taryn Winderbrill. We're here with Kathleen Thomas. She's the author of The Hardworking Woman's Guide to Money. Wonderful to have you with us. Thanks very much. Happy to be here. And you go by KT? I do. Great. I'd like to know in your own words, KT, how would you describe the book? You know, when I wrote it, I thought about if you
1: were sitting on a couch with your best friend who knew everything about money and everything about you, sure. and you had a conversation with them about what you should be thinking about over your life to try to get a better handle on
0: how you made decisions and managed your finances in the future. Okay. So that said, what was the impetus for this book? Is that because you never had that experience?
1: Um, Actually, no. I had a lot of experience along the way. My mother was one of those people that really wanted to try to figure out how to do things the right way. And so I think that in a lot of ways she taught me that, but I've made uh, most of my career giving financial advice for a living and uh, managing assets for clients. But I always find that people ask me the same kind of questions over and over again. And so I wanted to try to address that to an audience bigger than just my
0: clients. Sure, but looking back you know, the target of this book, when you were that person's age or that woman's age, what advice were you taking? Was it just from your mother? I mean, what resources were you using to guide your financial future? Yeah, there were actually not a lot of resources. That was kind of the problem.
1: Right. So my mother was uh, you know, the person who saved the $5 a week I talk about her in the book to buy the house. And so she did this because that was her way of getting it done. She didn't have a lot of resources either, but this was the thing she could do, and she just kept doing that one thing. But since I was a young girl, the world's gotten really loud, and there's a lot of information and misinformation out there that leads people down these paths that just make life financially a lot harder. So what I wanted to try to do was come up with some you know, some guidelines, some not necessarily the, the end all to be all answer, but, you know, what do you want to think about if you're going to buy a house? What are the things you need to know if you're going to try to apply for financial aid to just sort of give people some some groundwork and, a, and sort of a track
0: to run on? Sure. No, I, it's the kind of thing, as soon as this arrived in my mailbox, Katie, I was so excited just because I wish something like this would have existed when I was Coming up, I had right. I was fortunate enough to have a dad who was a CPA, so he guided me a little bit in terms of financial planning with Roth IRAs and IRAs. But I I remember tell, having a conversation with some of my friends about what a Roth IRA was. Yeah, like how what is that? How do you know about that? It was just the benefit of having a dad in the business. That's right. But for those people who don't, I didn't know a lot about other things. Right, and they don't teach this. Right, you know, they don't teach. They always talk about how.
1: Kids should be getting money management classes in grade school or high school or they they don't teach it in college. It's really Mm. you get out there and it's a series of missteps and steps as you try to figure things out. And sometimes you have parents that are really good about money or make their living in in the money business and they know a lot. And sometimes you don't have those kind of parents. And so who do you go to? Well, today I think people go, they go to social media, they go to podcasts, they go to websites, they look for information And so what I wanted this book to be was
0: like a guide. Sure. And, and that said, we're, we're so overwhelmed with information. How do you cut through the clutter? Right. right. I mean, now young people have so many more resources at their disposal. How do you know what's right, though? Right. So that's what this book addresses. Uh, curious, hardworking woman's guide to money. Is this strictly for women? Can this be applied to anyone? Yeah, I would argue that the majority of
1: this book could go really to any consumer. But I wrote it for women because um, I think they have the least amount of resources available What do you mean by that? Well, they, you know, statistically, because most of the time the women are raising the children, there's time that they're not in the workforce. Mm -hmm. You know, we all understand that women make less than men doing the same kinds of jobs. And then statistically, they're more likely to be widowed or single later in their lives. Right. So what we know is that. Right, because they live longer. Right. All women, at some point, almost all women are going to have to be the person making the decision. And they have the least amount of earning earning potential through their lifetime, right? And they're going to live longer than most men, so they they just needed more information. So I thought they also learn differently. Women learn differently than men, and so how, how so? What do you mean by that? I guess that you took that into so, account when you wrote yeah. Those. So women tend to learn better through storytelling. Hmm. They they like the idea that you could put it into an idea that they could say, oh, I remember that piece about. So I really did a lot of storytelling in the book, trying to wrap the different ideas around stories in, in my own financial lifetime along the way, things that either I've experienced myself or I've experienced with clients to help them think about how it might relate to them because I think that women learn better in that in that kind of setting. Have you gotten any feedback from men who have read this, that they appreciated the storytelling yes. angle? Yes, I mean I've had lots of um, men friends buy and read the book and say to me, "This could have been for anybody." Or why did you write this for just for women? And I thought, I've always wanted to write books, so I thought I would write the first book for women. And uh, they're like, "Why?" I'm like, "Well, I'm a woman, right? <laughs> and what I understand is women have less resources, so wouldn't it be great to write my first book for uh, for women?" And I think that um, I don't know many women that aren't hardworking women. They're running around trying to do all kinds of things at the same time. They're very busy, but they need salient information that they can apply to themselves, and it's got to be relevant, but it also has to be quick enough that they can grab it and get on with the 25 other things they're trying to do today. Right. There's a red handbag on the cover that was a specific choice. Why? I talk about it in the book. I um, this was, I was a, like a young professional, and I was involved with the Business and Professional Women's Association. And we had gone to their national convention. It was in uh, D.C., and it was an election year. Mm -hmm. And they were talking about uh, they had a chance to interview the presidential candidates. It was very exciting. But one of the things that was really interesting is um, Bob Dole was running for Mm -hmm. president against uh, Bill Clinton, who was the incumbent at the time. Right. And so they hand Bob Dole the red handbag And he says something like, oh, isn't this great? You know, Elizabeth will love this. And he takes it and hands it aside. He has no idea what it is. But the red handbag is um, symbolic of the earning discrepancy between women and men, which at the time was about 70%. Wow. So two women, you know, a man and a woman doing the same job in corporate America. The woman was making 70% of what the man was making. And that was actually considered to be great progress. Very sad. That was great progress. Right. And so... um, The next comes in Bill Clinton, and he grabs a red handbag, and he goes, we need to turn this bag black, and all the women cheer, because they all knew that he got what they needed. So whether you were for Bill Clinton or not, it's it's really not about him, but it's about the fact that men don't even understand how much this impacts women, and women don't understand that if they make 80% less than men, because that's about what it is today, they have to be smarter with their money because they have about 20% less earning capacity, even if they work their whole lifetime. It's so true.
0: I mean, this is a fact. It's in the news a lot. How women are still trying to achieve equality, equal pay with men. That said, we have to be smarter with our money because we have less to work with. I talk about it too. I talk about things like uh, how to negotiate for better
1: benefits at work, how Mm -hmm. you, you know, if you find that your employer is not paying you, which I talk a little bit about how do you decide you're going to look for another job and you know what's the first thing you do first thing you do is you know you don't quit your current job right you know that you just you know skillfully take your time maybe hire somebody to help you with your resume and that you don't you don't feel afraid to say no to the first job that comes along i think a lot of women are so they feel uh grateful that somebody offered them a job right. they just take it yeah and, and I'm like, you know, it's time maybe not to be as grateful. Maybe just be willing to continue to look. Be a little more there's, selective. There's really nothing wrong with looking. And in fact, I think today's young people, and this is not just a woman thing, this is a all-working people's thing, the only way that people making what they make today are going to make more is probably to leave their company and go somewhere else. Because corporations have been playing this, we don't need to pay you guys because the economy's bad and we're cutting people back or eliminating jobs. And now, what's happening is they all have a lot more money. You can see that by what's happening in the stock market. Mm -hmm. But employees aren't actually getting that money. Right? They're not getting their share of wallet. And frankly, I think the only way that most of them will is if they're willing to work their resume. Their next employer will pay them a much more substantial jump in pay Mm -hmm. than
0: their current employer probably will ever pay them. No, it's true. You need a clean slate to yes. You have to to be brave. Right? You got to be brave at the end of the day. C Suite Radio. The book outlines seven habits. Uh, very interesting. We'll get into it in a moment. Before we do that, though, KT, what do you think is the biggest mistake young women are making at this stage in the game? When
1: you know, it comes to st- financial planning? Still,
0: it's actually really funny
1: putting somebody else's name on their credit is still the big thing. Hmm. They meet a nice guy who has otherwise disastrous credit from previous marriage or when he was young and he just wasn't smart, and um, and they decide they're going to help him recover his credit score by sharing their credit with them. Hmm. And what I'll tell you is that there's usually a reason why somebody has a rotten credit score, and it's actually not your job to make it healthy. It's actually their job to make it healthy. And by sharing your credit with someone who has bad credit, they could ultimately go bad again, and then they could take your credit with them. So I always, one of the tenets I talk about is having your own personal financial identity. Right. Which means... You know, you have credit in your own name. You have some savings and or checking or both in your own name, maybe an investment account in your own name. Even if you're married, I I always say to my married clients that you want to be able to protect the household. If something happens to one of you, we don't want to take the family down. True. So each of you should have your own individual identities. Sure, you're going to have joint credit. You buy a house together potentially, and you'll have maybe a joint checking account. But you should also have individual savings, investments, and most importantly, credit. Really? The other thing is, I say to you know, young couples getting married, um, you need to decide what number is too much money for one of you to spend without the other one weighing in.
0: Right. You you have to have boundaries. So, is it
1: is it five hundred dollars? Is it a car? Is it two hundred dollars? Is it um, you know, you went clothes shopping and bought you know everything you could find. What's what's the number that will upset the other person, and then the two of you agree that you're going to live within those guidelines. And so I don't talk about these hard and fast rules. I talk a lot in the book about guidelines, establishing like the track you're going to run on so that you can go along making a lot of decisions and everything's just fine unless it's outside of one of those boundaries. And then you have to come together and make
0: a decision. Right. You need some sort of roadmap. Well, you, you did mention some of the other books out there, which lends the question, there are a lot of books that deal with this subject matter. How would you say, KT, yours is different? I would say, first, there are not a lot of books written just for women.
1: And I think that the the working women's market is just enormous. And um, there's not been a lot of good books written lately for consumers in a language that um, talks to them about guidelines and choices. Most of it's like, um, you know, money for dummies or yeah. it's about stock trading or about options mm-hmm. trading. It's either something really technical yeah. Or it's really something stupid, right? Right. It's either, you know, there's nothing in the middle They're the that says, those experiences. hey, guess right. what? You're smart. You don't have the time. This isn't your field of interest, but you need to know a few things. Right. And so the last good book, I think, that was written along that was um, uh, The Millionaire Next Door, which was written maybe 20 years ago. And then there were um, there was another book written along the way called Rich Dad, Poor Dad, mm-hmm. which was very much in sort of the vein of what I thought about when I tried to write this book, the idea of using life experience to create right. an outline for a, a guideline and then try to help you see that.
0: Yeah. And it really shows through. And I, I love what you said. It really is user-friendly because I'm one of those people who, who attempted to read some of those books and I just, it was too Yeah. Your eyes glaze over you're like, yeah. Oh. I mean, I was snoozing within five minutes, right. but this is really understandable and relatable, I think is, is the best word. There's so many things here. I don't want to give it all away, but just touch upon some of the things that uh, you talk about, you know, you have one, some of the, the habits, understanding your situation, you have to be willing to learn, establishing guideposts. Um, one of the things that caught my eye was under the habit of use the right resources at the right time. When should you choose a financial advisor? Oh, that's a great question. You right, know, Because we all went through it. Right. Some people still don't have one. Right. So is Many there an people, optimal time? Right. Many people
1: don't have a financial advisor. It's either they don't, have enough money that they feel like they can go to a financial advisor right. and get advice. You, you need frankly, money to make money. Right. Frankly, most financial advisors, they're really, there are really two kinds. There are the ones that want to work with people with a lot of money and they get paid really well to work with you. And then right. there are people that want to that get paid by creditors to do debt counseling and things like that. So for the average person just trying to map out what they need to know, a lot of times their best resources are online in the beginning. Um, so I talk about, you know, do you use a robo-advisor that manages an account for you so that you're not trying to pick your investments when you're when you're younger and when your accounts are smaller so that you can, I don't want to say set it and forget it, but basically you can decide to, you know, abdicate that work to mm-hmm. a technology and then not have to do it yourself. Um, buying your first home, a lot of times that mortgage broker will come in and try to be the person who's that resource. But usually what I say is people end up buying more house than they can really afford a lot of the time mm-hmm. because the mortgage person told them that they could they could afford it. And the realtor showed them houses that were $50,000 above the budget that they said they right. had. So I talk a little bit about there and there, you know, what do you do when you're going to do those things? But at some point you have kids, mm-hmm. you have a house, you're starting to think about college and you're starting to realize that I have a lot going on in no time. Right. That's really when a financial advisor becomes a really good resource for you because they can come in and consolidate that work for you in a way that allows you to look at it, you know, a couple of times a year, make some decisions and then go back to your life. And that's really the, the gift of what a financial advisor can do. And sometimes you'll find a CPA that's also doing financial advice or a lawyer that's also doing a financial advice. But you want to find a financial advisor who's a fiduciary. And you go
0: through this in the book, how to to pick the right advisor. Yeah, Mm -hmm. how to
1: pick the right advisor and how to avoid something that doesn't seem like the right advisor. So I, I joke about it in the book. I say, you know, if you make a lot of income and you don't find a financial advisor, one will find you. Right. Because there are, you know, there's a lot of young people out there marketing their heads off, trying to become a very successful financial advisor. But, you know, if they called you because you threw your business card in a free lunch bucket. Sure. You've got to know that that guy's probably brand new in the industry. You have to do your homework. So you have to do your homework.
0: Something else that caught my eye. uh, You say prenuptial agreements are for almost everyone. I'm a big believer
1: in this. And uh, it's mostly because I've seen it go wrong so many times. Yeah, I see it with widows a lot. People that lose their spouse through death, they believe in happily ever after. They believe until death does its part. They have had this experience and they believe that love is for real. And so they go into every relationship thinking it's going to be like the last one. Right. Except it doesn't work like that. Uh, you know, we know today in America, many, many marriages end in divorce. And you want to make sure that you protect what it is you bring to a marriage, you know, so that you have, you're not left with nothing. And I've seen people get divorced and be left with nothing. You know, they married someone who was self-employed. They got an inheritance from their parents. And then the mm-hmm. self-employed person put them in tax trouble, put them in debt. Right. ran away with some girl he met somewhere, and then she ended up using the inheritance from her family to just try to keep her and her kids above above water. And it's all
0: because she never structured to protect right. that. But I think a lot of people, Katie, think a prenuptial agreement is for the uber-wealthy. Yeah. Are you saying a prenup? Any, I would argue that le- it's any for any level. level? Well, so
1: if you come to a marriage with unequal, it's one thing, you know, you're poor, you're both starting out together and you have nothing, you have nothing to protect. Right. The idea that if you come to a, a marriage with more assets meaning you know more than half of what the other person has then you really want to think about how you protect it mm. also if you have children from a prior marriage this is really important because what yeah. happens is in in the world you think we're going to be married forever and maybe you will be married forever but maybe you die and then your new spouse who's not the parent of your children gets everything mm. and your children never get anything right so doing the right level of planning to make sure that you protect all the stakeholders in your life I think it's really important.
0: Yeah. There's so much to get to. Um, there's a concept called the doubting Thomas, which basically you're saying get a second opinion. So to being get- a Thomas, yes. right, I had to use this, the yes. doubting Thomas, is the idea that you shouldn't
1: accept it just on its face value. Right. That it's okay to check a source. And what I love is it's okay to say, you know, I'm going to let you know tomorrow, which, of course, all salespeople hate because they know that today most impulse buys the big tickets and people buy a house that they weren't looking for, they buy a car they weren't planning on
0: doing all the time. You're just saying when you say let tomorrow, just give it a day, right? Yeah, 24 hour rule. You were saying off camera that it's surprising how many people just buy in the day. They out. buy every day. They, they're talking to an expert. They say I need to do this, so I'm going to do it. Right. But you have to get a second yeah. and a third opinion. I always say, you know, the um, uh, you
1: know, not to not to tag on dentists, but cosmetics dental work has become the dentist told me I had to have it. Right. And it's like, well you know, maybe you didn't have $10,000 to spend on your teeth. And maybe it would be great if you had $10,000 to spend on your teeth, but maybe you don't have $10,000. They're like, don't worry, we'll finance it for you. And the next thing you know, you're in the chair. Yeah. And they say, well, my dentist said I had to do this.
0: Yeah. And you actually see that all the time. Uh, If there was one takeaway that you had to give us, what's the most important takeaway from the book? I would say be willing to learn. That it's not as
1: cumbersome and hard as it seems. That a little bit of work like a really small sound so bites, true. whether it's a podcast or it's something that you see on the internet yeah. or um, just going to the, you know, enrollment meeting at your 401k, whatever it is, it's a little bit of time that you can actually get a lot of
0: information that you can use. There's so many, so many great life roadmaps here, things that I wish I would have known way back when. So it's really invaluable. Um, and we've really just scratched the surface. You have a podcast? I do. KT's Money Matters.
1: Okay. Which is a Tuesday, Thursday podcast. Tuesday is like a quick tip Tuesday is what we call it. So it's basically like one, you know, it's drive time financial advice. Get a quick idea, use it or don't use it and move on. And real quickly, we should say... Your background obviously is in finance. You're a financial planner. This is what you do. I've been a financial advisor for 26 years. I'm a certified financial planner and I'm a certified investment manager analyst.
0: All right. So you know exactly what you're talking about. And it is so user-friendly and um, just so comprehensive. This is stuff we all need to know. And I look forward to the series. I mean, this could be applied to anyone and everyone. Let's hope so. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, Well done. Thank you. And if you'd like more information on the book, just check out our website, c That's c-sweetbookclub.com. I'm Taryn Winterbrill. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time right here on Bestseller TV. Like what you just heard, visit c-sweetradio.com. C-Suite Radio, turning the volume up on business. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-sweetradio.com.